All right, so we got two beers today. One of them is Solid Gold, which is a Belgian Golden. Pretty straightforward, crisp, dry, effervescent. Hops are there just for balance. There's not much going on on the nose as far as hops go. The other one, Mindbender, is the opposite. Hop Ford, it's an American IPA. IPAs, I don't know who does know or doesn't know, India Pale Ale. So they were originally designed to survive the voyage from England to India, which they found if they added more hops, they would survive the voyage. The American style is even more aggressively hopped. So it's bitter. We talk about international bitterness units. We don't usually throw IBUs around at Cannonball as much because the mathematical formulas you use have a big margin of error. But if you have a really fancy machine or two, a, a chromatograph or a spectrometer, you can dial those in. We have a friend who does. So he ran, actually, he gave it to their lab tech, and she ran our Mindbender, which came in at 80 IBUs. The math said it was 67. So right there you see it's 13 off. The math says that solid gold's 24. That could be 30, 35, or 28, or 23. So that's why we don't usually throw them around at the brewery, but you can get a basic idea. The gold is in the 20s. The Mindbender's up in the upper 70s, 80s. So it's more bitter on the back end. Both of them clock in around the same ABV. They're both about 7.4%. Uh, obviously, the big difference between these two styles, aside from hops in the American, is yeast strains. Belgian yeast strains have a very distinct fruitiness to them. In the, in the solid gold, it, it's kind of subdued, but it comes across a little bit. And some people might even pick out like cloves, like a little spiciness. But that's pretty subtle in the solid gold as well. And that's about it for those. I mean, they're pretty straightforward. Yep. And welcome to Golden Beer Talks. It's going to be an exciting evening. Is that better? Yes, better. All right. We have a lot going on with Golden Beer Talks, so I've got just a few announcements before I introduce our fascinating speaker. First of all, on your table, you will find these cool stickers. And I would like to give Whitney a hand, everybody, for supplying these. I'm really excited about these. I'm also excited because next month we are going to have beer mugs with the um, famous Golden Beer Talks logo available. So bring, how much are they going to be? They're, uh, they're going to be below $30 for a set of four. <laughs> right. So, that, yeah, that, that's another option, Jim. <laughs> um, and last, if you'll find on your table, there's a sign-up sheet. I think most everyone in this room has already signed up for our email list. But we want to be especially sure that you're signed up because this month we are going to be sending out a survey to get some opinions and ideas about Beer Talk so that we can improve them and continue them. So if you have not... Um, if you have not received an email recently reminding you to come to tonight's talk, then you're not on our list, and we'd love to get your email if you would like to get those reminders and to help us out by filling out the survey. So I hope everybody will fill out that survey because we really, really want to know what you think. With that, I'm going to introduce our speaker. His name, as you already probably know, is Jason Hansen. He is the co-author 
of this book, A Ditch in Time, The City, the West, and Water. But he also has two kids that happen to be about exactly 10 years younger than mine, so he's telling him that they're going to revert in 10 years to become exactly like they are now <laughs> when they're teenagers. Um, and he lives in Denver in a house that was built in 1917, so that keeps him pretty busy. But in a professional um, sense, he works at the center of the American West, which is in CU Boulder. Um, he's a research faculty there. And he researches, apparently, I told him he has a really cool job because not only does he research water, but right now he's working on seriously researching beer and how it's affected the American West. So we may well ask him to return and tell us about that because I think this crowd would probably really appreciate finding out more. So um, let's welcome Jason. Thank you, everyone. Is that good volume? All right. Need the mic? Yeah. Okay. Can we get a little higher? So thank you so much for inviting me. Um, the Golden Beer Club, I wasn't really sure what it was going to be when the invitation came. Um, but it has been among the most well-organized groups that I have gotten to work with over the last couple years. And so thank you so much to Whitney and Barb and Frank and all of you who, are, who, who found me and who are uh, putting this together. Um, I work at the Center of the American West. Quickly, you may not know what that is. We are a uh, research center at CU Boulder. Um, I like to think of us as a distillery for ideas and scholarship about uh, issues and topics affecting people who live in the West. Um, what we try to do is take uh, the the best scholarship available about a specific topic, whether that's energy development and fracking, or water uh, systems, or uh, beer, and uh, make it uh, accessible by using uh, innovative presentation formats and, and communication uh, strategies that most academics don't use when they're writing about beer. So we try to translate a lot of the, the academia into common language so that people can, can actually take it and use it. Um, and I'm especially excited to be here because I do like beer too. Uh, I've been waiting for months to wear this t-shirt. It's from the American Water Works Association. And uh, this... Uh, this really encapsulates why this is a good topic for you guys to, uh, to be talking about. It's the most important ingredient in, in beer. The town of, of Golden is, uh, is what it is today in part because uh, uh, old, old man Coors liked the water here, right? Um, I'm also, since writing this book, which came out a couple years ago, uh, I have shifted to focus more on beer and uh, forthcoming this spring... I'm guest editing a special issue of Journal of the West that is all about beer in the West. Uh, I think it's the first time that anyone's given it any kind of, of scholarly treatment at this level, and it is beyond fun to have that be my job. Um, so that's a shameless plug. I hope that one day I can come back and talk about beer in the West to you guys. Um, but uh, I decided that water would be a good topic for tonight. Um, for three reasons. First, uh, when we talk about the West, we tend to focus on wide open spaces. Uh, but the West is the most urbanized region in the country. 
And so it's really important to focus on the cities out here. When we talk about water in the West, we tend to talk about big irrigation projects like Hoover Dam or Grand Coulee. Um, and we tend to overlook urban water history. How, how do we get water to all of these cities that are uh, such prominent features on the Western landscape? And third, the few people who have talked about water in the West, uh, urban water in the West, tend to focus on LA and San Francisco, which have really interesting stories, but Patty and I thought that, Patty Limerick is my co-author, um, we thought that the story of water in the Denver area provided a, a really distinctive and interesting um, case study that deserved to, to be ranked alongside those California case studies. So we did it. Um, in this talk today, I want to address three overarching themes. Uh, first is the physicality of infrastructure. This is a very physical thing we're talking about here. Water, you've got to move it. Um, secondly, the pattern of development. And third, the causes of change, or not. We'll just throw those on the floor. Um, so a little orientation. Uh, water is a physical entity. Like I said, you've got to move it. So when you're talking about something physical, there's really no substitute for a good map. And this is the first talk I have given without PowerPoint in probably six years, and that was only because my computer crashed right before class and I wasn't able to give that talk with PowerPoint. But I had this map specially made uh, so that I could point to it for you guys. And I, we have it on this uh, handout here too so that you can follow along. Um, I'm going to take, yeah, does everyone have a, a handout? Uh, I think it'll be a lot easier to see than, than this, but this was the biggest size I could get printed. Um, all right, so, so as you have a map, and I hope there's enough. I have one more up here if anyone needs it. We're good? Okay. Um, I'm going to take us on a little tour of the, the Denver water system. Uh, we're going to just stop by some of the major features. It's a lot... Uh, it's way too complex and, and too multivariate to go through in 20 minutes. But some of the major features uh, in the order that they were built, because I think that makes it easier to see a few important things about uh, the way water developed out from the Front Range uh, and then over the Continental Divide and the impact that environmental laws have had on how water development is done. Um, on the back of that map is a little timeline for you. Uh, that gives the, the way Denver's population grew after 1900 and uh, the major features of the Denver water system, which really started getting going right after 1900. Um, and as you can see from the map, just uh, by way of introduction, the Denver water system, this map, represents about 4,000 square miles um, from the collection systems way up in the, in the high mountains uh, down to the city itself, way out to DIA. Uh, it provides water for about 1.3 million customers in Denver and the surrounding metro area. That's about 25% of the state's population. To do that, they use about 2% of the total water in the state. Um, so that's Im important numbers, I think, to keep in mind when we're talking about how we use water. Um, the features shaded in black on the map indicate actual system features for Denver, and there are plenty of other features for uh, other cities um, interspersed in there as well. Okay, so in the beginning, before the 20th century started, uh, there were 
water was provided by competing private firms. You would you could get your water from one firm, or you could get it from another. It was sort of like trash service in some cities. You just uh, pick which one you want to go with, and then they deliver for you, or in trash services case, pick up. Um, they were drawing mainly from local sources, which means mainly from the South Platte. You know, as the river would flow through Denver or just above Denver, they would. Uh, tap into it and divert it through ditches to where they needed it in the city. If you've been to Wash Park in Denver, that was an early reservoir. Um, Smith Lake there in Wash Park was an early reservoir uh, that they dug a ditch and, and led to there, and then it went up to Capitol Hill near where the state capital is. Um, but Denver's really rapid growth, uh, and we're talking about quadrupling and, and quintupling in those first decades. Uh, made it difficult for these private companies to, to keep up. And it made it difficult for them to keep up both in terms of quantity of water, but also in terms of quality of water. Uh, they were drawing water from the South Platte. Well, farms were busy locating along the South Platte and dumping their effluent and refuse into the South Platte and occasionally dead cows and pigs and, and whatever else. And uh, uh, typhoid and cholera were problems, uh, as they were in many cities. Uh, in the in the 1900s or in the 19th century, before um, uh, we got more sanitary water systems. Um, so, from several decades of this early sort of no holds barred competition, the Denver Union Water Company emerged uh, as the city's major water provider. They did that because they were financed by some very wealthy local men, uh, Walter Cheeseman, David Moffat, some others whose names are on streets and other landmarks, and they offered water for free for. Uh, a little under a year before all of their competition was just out of business. Um, and then once they, once they had the business, they, uh, they set about um, consolidating it, making it better. They realized pretty quickly that they were going to be vulnerable to being supplanted themselves unless they delivered better water and at more reliable quantities. And they realized that it was a problem to keep getting water from these low elevations and to keep storing it at these low elevations where people were surrounding them and where evaporation was uh, much more of a problem. So uh, Denver Union's uh, most noteworthy endeavor and really the most noteworthy endeavor in the system before it becomes the Denver, Denver Water Organization is uh, the building of Cheeseman Reservoir. And that is right here on your map. Um, just up the South Platte, about 50 miles from Denver. That's uh, notable, there's a couple things I want to point out about it. First, this is the first time that uh, a major water company really went high for supply. They realized that go up to the mountains where there aren't people all around where you're putting your reservoirs and you have a better chance of protecting your, your water. Um, you also can capture that snowmelt before it gets... Uh, before it gets contaminated or uh, taken by others. Um, they were building for the future. They, this reservoir you can see on the back, it's about 74,000 acre feet. That's enough for roughly, it's a squishy calculation, but about 400,000 people. Denver at the time was 130,000 people. So they're thinking big. They're really looking to the future there. Um, and it was privately built with minimal federal involvement. Uh, the first dam that they tried to build was washed out in 1903 by a flood. Uh, they got a better design and got back to work and had it built by 1905, two years. Uh, that, that's insanely fast in today's uh, water development world, uh, as we'll see in just a minute. Um, they just went out and did it. Yes, sir? Same location, yeah. 
Uh, the dam washed out. They, uh, they said, well, that design didn't work. What they had tried to do is just pile a whole bunch of dirt and rock. It's called a gravity dam. Just put a big enough mass in front of the river, and it'll hold it back. Well, it didn't. So they built an arched form, and the arch actually compresses with the water force. And uh, it, was, it was actually a, an engineering marvel at the time. It, uh, it hadn't been tried before. They weren't really sure it was going to work until the water got all the way up to the top, and it didn't break. Um, <laughs> and it's beautiful. If any of you ever get the chance to go hike up... Uh, up the Platte Canyon uh, and happened to encounter Cheeseman Reservoir. It is beautiful. It's hand cut by Italian stonemasons from uh, granite in the area. There's a spillway that's made to look like a natural waterfall. It's really beautiful. Um, all right, so the next significant event can't be seen on the map, uh, but it is the municipalization of the Denver Union Water Company. Um, part of the progressive era was a tendency to municipalize lots of utilities because the people thought that the city should own it. It would protect their interests better. Um, after more than a decade of squabbling over how much the water system was worth, uh, the citizens of Denver voted to buy Denver Union for about $14 million, which is something like, I don't even, I can't remember. It's, it's astronomical amounts of money um, in today's dollars. Uh, Maybe as much as the LA Clippers, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and it becomes the, the, the entity, they, they form the entity we know today, the Denver Water Board. Um, that water board is five members. Uh, they are appointed by the mayor in staggered terms. They did this to insulate the water board from political influence. That is, uh, one mayor can't come in and just sweep the water board clean and appoint a new one, nor is it... Uh, subject to vote, which seemed like a really good idea to insulate it from politics at the time, but has led to lots of wondering about the sort of secretive dealings of the water board over the ensuing decades. Um, and they're charged with, first and foremost, providing water for the citizens of Denver, and then after that for uh, providing water for other customers. Uh, who, who make contracts with the city of Denver, and that includes a lot of the municipalities in the metro area. Um, okay, so they got going slowly, but they really hit their stride by the 1930s. So the 20s were kind of slow for them, um, but by the 30s, they're really getting a lot done, and most notably, uh, the Moffat Tunnel, 1936. The Moffat Tunnel was actually the pioneer bore of the Moffat Railroad. When you're going to build a railroad tunnel, apparently you want to dig a smaller tunnel first to make sure it's going to be an okay place to, to put a tunnel. Well, uh, David Moffat, one of the uh, founders of the Denver Union Water Company, was looking for a shorter route through the mountains, uh, built the Moffat Railroad Tunnel. The Denver Water Board said, well, you've got this other smaller tunnel right next to it. Uh, can we use that? And uh, they, they bought it, and they lined it and converted it into a water tunnel. And for the first time... Uh, water was coming from the other side of the Continental Divide to the Front Range. Um, not for the first time, but for the first time on a large scale. Some of the old uh, mining settlements had actually figured out ways. Uh, Hoosier Pass near Breckenridge has, I think, the first con transcontinental ditch um, that they dug by hand. But this was the first large-scale transfer from the West Slope to the Front Range. Um, it's also important because it opens a secondary supply. If you can see here, this gray area is the South Platte collection area. 
this dark area here is what they refer to as uh, this one here, I'm sorry, the Moffat Collection Basin or the, the northern system of Denver water, which means that you now have water coming from two systems, which makes you insulated if one of those systems has a shortage. You can hopefully get enough from the other system. Uh, so they're diversifying their supply. Uh, the projects are getting a lot more complicated, though, obviously. We're digging tunnels underneath the Continental Divide. This is, this is complicated stuff. It's a lot more complicated than even building a newfangled type of dam that they weren't sure was going to work. Um, and for an encore, they actually built two more tunnels, the Gumlick Tunnel and the Vasquez Tunnel. The Gumlick Tunnel brings water over to the Front Range as well. The Vasquez Tunnel brings it back to the Western Slope, which seems a little bit crazy, but what it does is it dumps it into the Moffat Tunnel collection system so that everything can come through the Moffat Tunnel uh, to Denver. Um, but you can see that's that's getting pretty complicated. They're feeling pretty, the engineers at Denver Water are feeling pretty good about their ability to move water. Um, this is also the beginning of large-scale federal involvement in Denver projects, but it's in a really good way because the WPA arranges most of the funds to pay for this project to happen during the Great Depression. So Denver is welcoming federal involvement in its water projects at this point. Um, we're going to fast forward past World War II, which uh, really put a slowdown on, on everything water-related. Uh, and get to Dillon Reservoir. You've probably all seen it. Maybe you've gone boating on it. Um, it's uh, on I-70 there between Dillon and Frisco. It's actually on top of where Dillon used to be. Um, this is the most ambitious and complex project to date for the Denver Water System. It's completed in 1963. Uh, in order to do it, they started buying land in the town of Dillon at, estate, at um, tax sales during the Great Depression. Eventually, they had bought a significant enough portion of the town that they just moved it out of the way. Um, there's some great pictures of like the old Dillon Church on a flatbed truck. Uh, um, it was also as, and it's, it doubles the entire system capacity. If you look at that chart, it's 250,000 gallons. So there were about 250,000 gallons in the system. They double it in one fell swoop. Um, or acre feet, I'm sorry, not gallons. There's a big difference. Um, yeah, it's not milk jugs, it's acre feet. Um, which incidentally is, is one foot of water that covers a whole acre, acre foot. Um, it's intensely litigious, as you can imagine. They moved a whole town. Uh, and there's a lot of water rights questions because they are, there's something called uh, prior appropriation, which is the basis for Colorado and most of the West water law. That means that uh, it's usually abbreviated as first in time, first in right. If you claim it first and put it to use, you get first dibs on that water, even if someone moves upstream from you and tries to take it out before it would get to you. Well, Denver Water moved upstream from some existing projects that were sending water down to Western Slope communities. And Denver Water claimed, well, we'd been meaning to do this before World War II. And we sent some surveyors out there. And really, you have to just show that you started the project. It's not when you completed it. It's when you started it. So they argued over this for, for decades about what the order was going to be in terms of priority. Um, they came to an extraordinarily complex agreement that I still don't pretend to understand even after writing a book about it. There's a whole chapter in it about the Blue River Accords. Um, but the basic idea is that Denver gets to fill out of order, gets to fill Lake Dillon out of order, unless, uh, unless Green Mountain Reservoir doesn't fill, and then, which is downstream, and then there's some complex water jujitsu that happens to make sure that the western slope gets made whole in terms of water. Um, 
This is federal involvement too, but in a different way. First of all, that Green Mountain Reservoir, that's a Bureau of Reclamation federal reservoir, and they wanted to make sure they were getting their water. So the federal government is actually suing Denver, telling them, You're not, you can't build this. And there's this great moment, it's like one of the last great Old West moments, where uh, the Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall at the time, orders Denver Water. Denver Water has the dam already to go. And the Secretary of the Interior says, you cannot fill this dam. We're still reviewing. And Denver Water's chief legal counsel and spokesperson, Glenn Saunders, actually stands on top of the dam and tells the bulldozers, to hell with Stuart Udall, let him come and stop this, fill the dam. And once it started filling, it was a little hard to stop it. Um, so things are getting tense with the federal government as well. Um, okay, so we've been moving really quickly through time. We just like bang, 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 right? This is a great moment to slow it down. Dylan is a great spot to, to really slow down and think about what's happening here. So Denver Water got the dam at Dylan by hook and by crook, some would say, but they got it. And what lessons should they have drawn from that process? It was really hard to make it happen. It took 20 or 30 years of effort. Remember, it took you know two years to build Cheeseman Reservoir. 20 or 30 years of Denver and a whole lot of lawyers. Um, so should they have thought, wow, the times are obviously changing. Like Maybe we should change our approach. <laughs> or should they have thought, well, our system is working. It may take a little longer, but the, the hard work, um, that's right. Uh, the you know the the dedication pays off and and we got what we wanted so there's no no reason to change. In retrospect, we can look at what's going on around and say all these environmental laws are being passed. There's the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Federal Land Policy Management Act, the uh, the uh, creation of the EPA, the Wilderness Act. All this is happening. It seems obvious that Denver should have read the wind and said the times they are changing. Maybe we should adjust. But the lesson they drew from it, which seems, if you put themselves, put yourself back in their shoes, is that, well, what we did worked, and there's no reason to change. And so they were looking at the ever-growing population of Denver. They were not resting on their laurels, and they thought, we need more water. And so we come to the last page of this talk. Um, what they thought is, we'll just propose a treatment plant. Pretty uncontroversial. You have water in a reservoir, it needs to be treated before people can drink it. Everyone agrees to that. So they proposed Foothills Treatment Plant, which is uh, near Roxborough Park, if you've been there. Uh, beautiful location. Uh, well, it became, it blew up on them. It became a proxy battle between environmentalists uh, and Denver Water because what they proposed was a treatment plant that was way too big to it was way bigger than they needed to process how much water they had. And environmental groups, which were just really getting formed in the, in the 70s, um, this is in the early 70s when they start floating this idea around, uh, said, wait a second, there's something off about your math here. You don't need a treatment plant this big. You're planning to build something much bigger, aren't you? And we're upset about that. And they figured out pretty quickly that what Denver Water was planning to build was something called Two Forks Reservoir. And some of you who have lived here a while may remember Two Forks Reservoir. Um, so Denver Water pushes ahead. They steamroll through. They get the Foothills Treatment Plant approved, and it's built in 1983. But it's at a much steeper cost than before. First of all, they had to agree to build it in phases instead of this whole big treatment plant all at once. So they would scale it up as, as needed. And second of all, 
they were obligated to do a system-wide environmental impact statement the next time they wanted to build something. So not just an environmental impact statement on the thing they wanted to build, but their entire system was going to be subject to an environmental impact statement. They were going to regret making that agreement because as the Two Forks battle was going on, Denver Water said, you're right, we do want to build Two Forks Reservoir. Or as the Foothills battle was going on, Denver Water said, we do want to build Two Forks Reservoir. You're right about that. And Two Forks Reservoir is an outline on the map right here just above Strontia Springs um, where the main stem of the South Platte and the North Fork of the South Platte meet. Uh, geographically, if you look at it, it would have been massive. And it would have involved uh, moving or obliterating several other towns. You can see that the town of Deckers is in there. Deckers would not be there. Denver Water actually owns all of Deckers still. Or the actual, um, back that up. They own a good chunk of Deckers. Um, they've sold it to a, a Texan, I believe, in part. Um, uh, but this was their most ambitious project to date. It was going to be a huge reservoir, 93,000 gallons, but covering an enormous footprint. Um, and it engendered the fiercest opposition to date. And it was opposition that Denver Water didn't know what to do with. They had always steamrolled their way through. And now, not only were they meeting all this opposition, but they were meeting it from people who they didn't even recognize had standing, like environmental groups that meet at coffee shops like this were suddenly saying, no, we deserve a, a place at the table in this conversation. Denver Water said, no, you don't. We have lawyers, and you know we've been planning this for decades, and what are, what are you going to tell us that we don't already know? And uh, Denver Water, uh, as you have surely guessed by the fact that it's not on the map, lost. Um, they were ultimately defeated. Uh, formally, the, the rejection came from the EPA based on a relatively obscure provision of the uh, Clean Water Act, the 404C provision. Um, they had gotten almost all the other permits they needed, but the EPA uh, denied it. And uh, this was the place where Denver Water fell back in the face of environmental regulation. And not only Denver Water, the Big Dam era basically founders right here on this provision. This was uh, the twelfth time that the EPA had ever invoked this rule, but it was the first time on such a big scale. And when you think about it, laws get passed. This law got passed in the 70s. You don't really know what laws mean until they get tested, right? Denver Water didn't believe that EPA had the authority or the gravitas to actually stop them from this major project because up till now, every dam project in the West virtually had gone ahead. Denver Water just didn't believe it could happen to them, but it did in 1990, and they were reeling. They basically cleaned house after that um, voluntarily. The people who had worked on this project for decades, for their whole careers basically, uh, left Denver Water. And they brought in a new water manager. His name was Chips Berry. And Chips looks like Theodore Roosevelt, or looked like Theodore Roosevelt. He had this big bushy mustache, and he was this big kind of goofy barrel of a man. And he, um, he said, we're going we're gonna to change things and, uh, because we have to. Um, so no more... Uh, no more confrontational projects, uh, and we're going to focus on conservation, and Denver has, um, to the extent that when you look at uh, water usage around Colorado, Denver is among the leaders in terms of cities. Um, you see a lot of western slope cities actually close to the bottom of that list, and uh, Denver is really leading the way because it's been an aggressive conservation uh, program. Um, so conservation's working in Denver, but 
how do we know if things have really changed? And this is the point I want to want to leave us with. Um, so we can Denver Water can say all they want. We've changed. We've changed. We've changed. But the proof is is really in the concrete and in their actions. And they have proposed uh, an expansion of Gross Reservoir that you might have heard about. Um, Gross Reservoir was built in the 50s. It's on the North System here, uh, right, um, right here. Uh, it holds about 41,000 gallons right now. Denver Water has proposed raising the dam 125 feet and tripling the storage in Gross Reservoir. Um, wouldn't wash. They don't have to move any towns or anything like that, but it would significantly increase the footprint of the reservoir and add a lot more water to the system. Now, Denver Water wants to do this for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, in 2002, the Hayman Fire basically uh, shut down their South Platte system for a while, and they realized that they were vulnerable. They, even though they had two systems, and that was good, and they were able to really struggle by on the North System for a while, um, the fire around Cheeseman Reservoir shut down the South Platte system and then filled it with silt afterwards, and it's an ongoing problem that they're dealing with. Um, so they wanted to increase their flexibility and, and eliminate that bottleneck by increasing storage on the northern system. Um, it's also, if you talk with anyone at Denver Water, they are refreshingly forthright about climate change. They're not going to engage you in a political discussion. They just say, we would be irresponsible if we didn't take some steps right now to address what might happen. That is what we do as a water agency. And so if climate change predictions are right, and things get drier, we need more flexibility in our storage system. And Gross Reservoir isn't a new reservoir. That was one of the things that the people who opposed Two Forks said. Why do you need a new reservoir? Why not just expand one of the old reservoirs? So they said, look, we're trying to do this. But it's still, it's, uh, it's a big expansion, and it's got a lot of people upset. The other way that you can maybe judge whether or not Denver Water's really changed is uh, by what they're doing in terms of how they're working with other communities and other people. Denver Water has a long history of steamrolling communities on the western slope, around the metro area. Um, they always got what they wanted, and they didn't really care uh, about the ill will, because in the end, they had the water that they wanted. And if it was a metro area community, most likely that community was going to be coming to Denver three years later and asking for a contract on favorable terms. So they weren't worried about it. Um, but in 2012, uh, Denver Water signed uh, what they call the Global Agreement. It's got a complicated name uh, that I always forget, but it goes by the Global Agreement. And it, what it was was an agreement between a consortium of water providers and communities in the state. And there's a lot of elements to it, but the most significant is that Denver Water, in exchange for Western Slope uh, water providers and the Northern Colorado Water uh, Conservation District not opposing the Gross Reservoir expansion, Denver Water has agreed to uh, only proceed with another expansion beyond this if they get unanimous support from the affected communities. Um, so basically, let us do gross reservoir, and we will stop unless you say it's OK. Um, it's, it's sort of a big deal. It's not yet ratified, but it's looking OK. Um, so those are the big questions. Have things really changed? That's what I want to leave us with. And can they ever change all that much for a water utility whose first responsibility is providing water for the largest metro area in a 900-square-mile uh, region? Um, and at that, I would say the questions are open for discussion. And if you have any other questions, I'll be happy to try and answer those, too. Thank you so much.
So we'll just take about a 10 minute break so everyone can get another beer or some dessert. (laughs) It's very good. Nice grapefruit citrusy quality to it. So in about 10 minutes, we'll all come back and um, ask you a bunch of questions if that's okay. I'll try and be ready. All right, thanks. Okay, Golden Beer Talk people. We're going to reconvene for some questions. Go ahead. Now you've all had time to think and drink. Uh, Go ahead and hit me with your best shot. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. So most people buy them, their property rights. Uh, and if you're a municipality looking for more water, like in Denver Water's case as they expand Gross Reservoir, they're buying water rights that are coming downstream there, or go, would have gone down to Colorado, uh, but they've moved them under the Continental Pride. So when that happened, there was already a legal framework? Oh yes, the legal framework, actually interestingly enough, um, started in Greeley. Uh, Greeley started as a utopian colony, you might know, the, the Union Colony. Um, utopian agricultural society that didn't quite work out, and uh, someone moved upstream to Greeley and started siphoning the water out of the Poudre River. Um, and the farmers who were still part of the colony were very upset and sued. And, uh, so there was already some, uh, some of this water law coming out of California and so forth, but that Greeley case is really where the prior appropriation doctrine got solidified, got codified. Um, so that was in the 18, late 1860s, if I remember right. Oh, I'm so sorry. Should I? Closer to the mic, I'm sorry. Speak in the mic. So that question will be hard. Sorry. Okay, so if I was wrong about when the water rights happened or where, no one will ever. <laughs> yes, sir. Does Denver have any access or rights to Clear Creek? Okay, so I will caveat this by saying that Denver's water rights portfolio is huge and complex, and there are people who spend their whole careers sort of learning it and mastering it and keeping track of it. Um, no significant rights, to my knowledge. Uh, they used to send water down Clear Creek. Some of that before they built, you know, they, they had the Moffat. Uh, if you look at your maps here, sorry, I'm going to move the microphone a little closer to the map. Um, uh, it comes down Moffat Tunnel, and uh, they were before they had the Moffat treatment plant built. 
the water that was coming through Moffat Tunnel was ending up in Clear Creek and was actually landing uh, north of Denver, where it wasn't any good for drinking, but it was good for replenishing the plat, so it allowed them to take out water upstream from town, and then they'd add water back in downstream from town. It also had the fortuitous bonus benefit of um, diluting a lot of the waste and sewage before they had a good sewage treatment plant. But uh, Denver Water then built the, the Moffat treatment plant and some underground conduits and brought that water directly into the city and, and kept it out of Clear Creek. Um, yes, ma'am. Okay, so how many of you guys have been to Winter Park? Ski area. Cool. You've seen the Moffat Tunnel. Um, <laughs> if you've been there in the summer, especially for a concert, there's a big pipe running down the main slope right into the, to the ski base. Um, that is how the water is coming to the Moffat Tunnel, and then you can see the train tunnel right there. The water tunnel is directly to the right of it. Um, it's sort of housed in a concrete block, and there's some valves on it. Um, it goes into the tunnel as a pipe, and then the tunnel is lined with concrete. There's some really great pictures that when I um, do a talk about this with PowerPoint, I like to show of all these Depression-era steel workers sort of welding the rebar in a circle, and then they poured concrete. So it's concrete lined, but it's just a tunnel. Um, that tunnel and uh, the Roberts Tunnel, which is the one that gets the water from Lake Dillon down to the South Platte, and all the other tunnels uh, generally get inspected once a year, which I have met one of the guys who went on an inspection tour once, and um, they like get in an old army jeep, and the water is out of the tunnel, and they, they shut the water off, and they drive through, especially Roberts Tunnel, which is big enough for this. I don't think Moffat is big enough for a jeep, but they, they uh, inspect these tunnels, so they're, they're pretty big. What's that? Yeah, it's like a Mini Cooper or a little golf cart or something. Um, uh, so it, it is a tunnel, but you wouldn't know it because pipes are going in and out. And it used to be back in the day they would use a lot more open systems, canals and flumes and so forth, but it turns out that because of possible contamination and also because of evaporation, it makes a lot more sense to put it in a closed carrying system. Uh, in the back first. Okay, so, oh, go ahead. It's tricky. Um, uh, Chatfield has, uh, Denver Water has some rights, and I am going to blow it if I try and explain what they are. Um, Chatfield's main purpose is flood control from the Army of Rec, the, um, the Army Corps of Engineers. Uh, but Denver Water has secured like a small portion of the rights to be used in case of extreme drought, I think is how that works. So it's mostly flood control. Um, prior to 1960s, Denver got hit by some pretty big floods about every 10 to 20 years. And the last one was in 1963, really did a lot of damage. And uh, so they, they built Chatfield Reservoir in part, or in large part, to impound those floodwaters uh, and control um, before the water got to Denver. You had a question? Since you uh, co-wrote Patty Emmerich, I think you should give us a memory about water. Oh, good Lord. Uh. <laughs> uh, 
So what you may not know is there are actually, Patty loves writing limericks because uh, she is just sort of uh, bound by her heritage to do so. Um, uh, so between each chapter, there are limericks in this book. And uh, I just opened to one. This is uh, right as we're starting to look at um, uh, transcontinental divides. Uh, so it's, it's before chapter three. Uh, Colorado and the Consequential Rectangle. The men who created the state gave it an, ungain- an ungainly shape to our fate. It hardly seems fair that the love of a square was their strongest and most forceful trait. Uh, and that, that sort of gets at the point that um, y- you may know about John Wesley Powell, who uh, explored the West in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and uh, he proposed actually a a system of state boundaries that was based on water basins, on the logic that it would alleviate a lot of fights about water between states. Um, But uh, the way things worked out, um, they drew a lot of straight lines because of the survey system that surveyed the West, and Colorado ended up as a square, and so most of the water falls on the western slope of Colorado, uh, mostly in the form of snow in the high country. And most of the people were coming from the east and stopped when they saw those big mountains. And so most of the population is on the front range. And it's a big mismatch. And the square really doesn't help anyone in terms of trying to unite these two, uh, these two sides of the mountains. Um, I'll give you one, one more. This one, uh, this one is about climate change. It's called Climate Change and the Stressful Life of Water Managers. Uh, as the world proceeds to get hotter, the power to predict will soon totter. The baseline's been battered, the norm has been shattered, but everyone still wants their water. Yes. <laughs> You didn't know you were coming to a poetry reading. Um, but it is a coffee shop, so. All right, what else we got? Anything? Have I exhausted? I like the snapping, by the way. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. Has the center been approached or participated in a plan to totally rebound water law? <laughs> um, no. No, not, we have not been approached to participate in such a plan. People are always talking about what would be better than prior appropriation. And we have at CU uh, Natural uh, Resources Law Center, the Getches Wilkinson Center. As part of that, we have a a division that looks at water law. Um, There's always a law of the river conference, and there's always somebody talking about how much of a mess prior appropriation makes out of out of the water system here. But that conversation, which usually starts at a conference and then ends up at a bar, always founders on the idea that we can't figure out a better way to do it. Um, we don't have enough water for everyone to just sort of take what's closest to them in this state or in the West in general. Um, at the center of the American West, we define the West, uh, when people ask, you know, well, what do you mean when you're talking about the West? We define it as the um, 100th meridian, which runs uh, 
through the Texas Panhandle and Kansas and, and up toward the Dakotas. It is uh, a proxy. It serves as a pretty good proxy for where the annual rainfall drops below 20 inches a year on average, and that is 20 inches a year is the minimum that you really need for agriculture that is not um, additionally irrigated. So. Once you get past that, you need to be moving water around if you want to grow crops and, and have cities and so forth. And we have a tough time. Everyone has it. People would love to get rid of prior appropriation. People hate prior appropriation, but they can't figure out what else to do about it. I, I would just like to go on record saying, That's right. Yeah. But Denver also loves it. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a... It's not something that Denver Water talks about a lot, but um, when we talk about potential water shortages in the future, Denver's really at no risk at all under the current system. We have so much water that we've laid claim to with senior rights that it's going to take an awful lot for the citizens of Denver to actually run out of water. We, we still conserve and, and, and only water our lawns once a week or never or whenever, whatever they tell us to do. But... Um, it's, it's places that are a so the Denver Water Board's charter says the first responsibility is to provide water to Denver. So that's like the last redoubt in, in a big drought would be the city limits of Denver. That is the most massive agglomeration of water rights in a 900 mile square uh, 900 square mile region. Um, so if you ever get really worried about drought, consider buying property in Denver. Okay. <laughs> Uh, first the back, then you, sir. Oh, virtually, so virtually any municipality that's that's uh, not a suburb of uh, of the metro area has pretty significant water rights um, or pretty senior water rights, although they tend to outgrow those if they grow quickly and not all of them have had enough money to purchase as senior a right as they would like. The other group that has some really significant senior water rights is actually energy development companies, um, especially on the Western Slope and oil shale country. Uh, places like, she or companies like Shell and Chevron and, and Exxon have, have purchased from ranchers and farmers out there senior water rights, and they often operate a leaseback program where the ranchers and farmers can continue to lease the water until they need it until the energy company might need it. But they've got quite a portfolio out there. You may remember a few years ago, Shell put a claim into the Yampa River, one of the last sort of, one of the last rivers that's not fully, fully appropriated uh, by the water rights system. And there was such an outcry that uh, Shell, Shell sort of backed away from that claim. But energy companies have enough money to buy these senior water rights uh, so it's energy companies and it's municipalities. You may also hear the phrase buy and dry. Um, municipalities, as they grow, tend to look toward farms and ranches. And uh, the, old, the older style of practice was to just buy out a farmer's water rights and dry the field up and divert that water to the city. More recently, they've been looking at some more creative ways of keeping some of that water unless it's needed in a drought year. So the farmer can plant, you know, most years, and, and then if it's a drought year, it might be a dry year. But uh, the cities, you know, have realized, cities like Colorado Springs come to mind, have realized that 
they don't really gain a lot by having just dry, dead fields surrounding them. Um, it, you lose part of that culture and heritage that we all like. So, um, and food source, not to mention food source. Jim. So uh, you said Denver gets about 2% of the water, Ag gets 80 something, and the rest of the cities get 15 or something. So, right. Cities and industry. Yeah, but if you take all that 100% of Colorado water, what portion of the water flowing downstream is it? Oh, man. Um, Ballpark. <laughs> so, God, you get, you're testing me on the Colorado River Compact. Um, yeah. So, so uh, there are a variety of water compacts that govern the. So most many rivers start in the high country here in Colorado, and uh, the way this works, we don't get to just take all the water before it leaves Colorado. We have to leave some in the river for Nebraska, for instance, um, or for Kansas, um, and uh, and we have to leave water in the Colorado River. Uh, the the most famous water compact is the Colorado River Agreement. It was agreed to in 1922, ratified in 1923, except for Arizona, which held on bitterly. Um, what that does is it divides up the water between all the basin states in the, in the Colorado River Basin on a 10-year average. So every 10 years, the state of Colorado has to deliver a certain amount of acre-feet um, but that means that some years we can take a lot more as long as we dial it back in other years so that we're delivering that average over 10 years. Like off the top of my head, I want to say it's between 10 and 20% stays in Colorado. But that is totally off the top of my head. I should step away from the microphone so that's not recorded. Like that, that, that yeah, that, we don't want that number recorded. I'd have to go look it up. It's got a definitive acreage. Absolutely, yes. It is not a percentage of how much is in the water, how much is in the river that year. Um, and when they figured out, they did it on sort of a percentage basis when they were figuring it out in the 20s, but all the hydrologic data they had turned out to be from one of the wettest periods in the history of the West, like in the geologic history of the West. Um, and we're talking about thousands of years worth. Uh, so they wait, they. I think 16.4 million acre-feet a year is the total take for the United States for all those basin states. Uh, but the river averages historically closer to about 15 million. Um, so what happens is that all that water is gone before it gets to Mexico. And often the Colorado River Delta is, has been historically just dry by the time it gets into Mexico. Um, there are programs afoot right uh, now there, you know, um, to try and get some water flowing back into. Yeah, there's a big flush happening, um, but there are longer-term treaties in effect now to get some of that water to Mexico. We made the Colorado River Agreement and didn't uh, worry about Mexico, um, and uh, nor Indian tribes uh, that happen to already have guaranteed water rights. Uh, through the location of their reservations uh, along the Colorado River. So it's still being adjusted. Um, also, Southern California got really into the habit of absorbing excess that was coming down. Um, and uh, in the Bush administration years, actually, they, uh, Secretary Gail Norton, Secretary of the Interior Norton, uh, 
force them to stop just taking whatever was they, they couldn't take their excess they had to stick to what they were allotted and nothing more um, is that it? Yeah. Yeah. alright thank you all so much <laughs>